this week we'll talk about the role of a staff AI engineer. And we have a special guest today, Tatiana. Tatiana works as a staff AI engineer at LinkedIn. Before that, she worked in physics and in healthcare. It's actually not the first time Tatiana is a guest here in this uh, podcast, around two years, maybe slightly less, I don't remember. We already talked with her and the topic there was changing careers from academia, from physics to machine learning. And now, after two years, we again have Tanya, Tatiana, and we will speak about the staff role. So welcome again. Thank you. Thank you for inviting. So before we go into our main topic of being a staff engineer, let's start with your background. We already spoke about your background years ago, but maybe you can run us through again and then also tell us what also happened in the last two years. Yeah, so I started my career with PhD in physics and I worked for a while developing lasers and optical systems. Then on maternity leave, I got quite interested in machine learning field, which was new back then. So I started to do pet projects and uh, cuddling and uh, doing some research, my own research and publishing papers in machine learning. And after maternity leave, I moved to healthcare when I was working on computer-aided diagnostic tool for labor monitoring. And at that point, we talked almost two years ago. After one year of work in the hospital, I started to go through interviews to different companies, big tech companies, different startups, remote works, and so on, and started to work as a tech lead at LinkedIn. So after some difficult choice, choose LinkedIn, uh, where I worked for the last one year and a half. And uh, that's been like pretty much all the news for the last two years, but I learned a ton because it's a new industry and new environment. Yeah, that was pretty concise. <laughs> I <Yeah>. tried. <laughs> yeah, you tried. So well, I'm just curious, it's probably two different worlds or even three different worlds, like academia, then working uh, at a hospital and then now working at a big tech company, right? So it's like all three are very different. So how was it for you? Like when you from a hospital, when you joined uh, LinkedIn, a big tech company, overwhelming, I guess? It was transformational. It was overwhelming. In the first three months of onboarding, I was working about 80 hours, 70, 80 hours a week. Big kudos to my husband who understood that I needed the time. So he was helping with kids a lot when I was just studying in evenings. Yes, it was like a big challenge, but also a big shift is in the mindset. So when you work in academia and also hospital is quite close to academia, your timeline is a bit different. You plan projects for one, two years. You are not in a hurry. You are like relaxed. You don't have that many meetings. So you really learn in academia a bunch of skills of effective communication, of fast pace, of making planning quarterly, on delivering results faster. So what you do in academia for during a year, you need to accomplish during three months and things like that. And when you have a meeting in academia, people talk like they have all the time in the world. So for, for one hour, you can have a meeting without that much outcome. And in, in industry, you have 20 minutes meetings. You have to decide what you're going to do. Then the next 20 minutes, 20 minutes meetings, 30 minutes meetings, and so on. So you learn a lot on collaboration, communication, prioritization, and so on. Yeah, but that was very useful. 80 hours a week, that's insane. Like. 
why did you need to put so much effort there? Like, I guess at the beginning, it was just too difficult to overwhelming. So you needed to put extra effort into catching up with everything. I think, yes. Well, it's it's not that I always work 80 hours a week. Mm -hmm. It's not possible. But at the beginning, you had, right? But you in had the to... beginning, I realized that I came and I realized that, okay, Scala Spark. I never mm -hmm. thought of that. Kubernetes. So a lot of internal tools that I never used. And uh, you also attack it. So you actually don't have that much on, on boarding and relaxing boarding. You are attack lead and you actually lead others so you already need to deliver some design of the new system at scale and that you never delivered at this scale like for recommendation systems for 80 million users it's not something that i was doing before but i was a tech lead so all decisions were on my side so to make those decisions i had to learn a lot how other companies do it read a lot of blog posts, papers as well at the same time learning all those tools that i never used Yes, and I guess I was just uh, overwhelmed, so I tried to do my best to catch up. If I had to do it second time, I would say myself, take it easy. It's okay. They give you time. You're not supposed to deliver results in the first two months. It's okay. But I think I was so much worrying that I will not be effective enough that I worked extra mile. Now I know that I could have taken it easier and mm -hmm. take my time to learn. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I want to ask you more about the tools and uh, like how you approach this learning. But before that, I think it would be interesting to know what tech leads do, what staff engineers do. You mentioned that you need to lead others, you need to design systems, you need to make decisions, right? So what does your day look like? What kind of things you need to do? Yeah, okay. So in short, I'll tell like that I'm paid for my opinion. Mm -hmm. That's in short. So now in details, uh, as a staff engineer, there are different kinds of staff engineers, particularly our team is horizontal team. It means that we have a lot of internal stakeholders in different orgs. And that means a lot of interactions with different teams, with products, uh, with data scientists, with other teams, with annotators, with legal team, and so on. So like almost half of my work are different meetings and interactions. And you are liaising on strategy, you are defining roadmap for a set of projects, you agree with other leaders and uh, align on different cross-functional collaborations, different projects, you also own the delivery of the results and their impact. So a lot of work goes into that meetings on alignment and defining the roadmap and strategy and what you're going to do and defining the objective, both business and technical goals, basically. Uh, you collaborate with products a lot on that. On the technical side, you also mentor a lot of people, not only in your immediate team, but across different teams as well. You work with ML engineers, annotators, engineering linguists, data scientists, UI engineers, and you supervise them all to make sure that the project is delivered on time. You are part of promo committees and hiring committees when you review the work of the others. You do, as AI, technical stuff, you do a lot of machine learning design. Obviously, if you're uh, like stuff in some other like infrastructure you you probably work on system design more so a lot of work is dedicated to creating uh, designs and also reviewing designs of the others so when people 
do some designs that has to be reviewed and often staff is the, the person who is pulled in to get the opinion. You also do a lot of code reviews. So people who work with you write code and you review it for your team and also outside your team. You don't write much of the code. I still try to keep hands-on. So I, I dedicate myself one day a week to write code. That's my choice basically. But most of the time you don't really write the code. And there are some staff who don't write any code. And there are some staff people who write more code. Depends on what kind of staff you are as well. And uh, as for me, I write a lot of docs, obviously, and a lot of plans and roadmaps. And every everything needs a doc. If you have a legal alignment, for example, you need to document it and things like that. And yeah, that's pretty much all the pillars. So designing systems, mentoring others, giving your opinion, improving craftsmanship of the team and outside your team, defining strategy, defining roadmap and making sure that the bigger projects involving many teams go to production and they make an impact. Quite a lot for one person, isn't it? Well, you are more like leading that. So you don't uh -huh. do that all yourself, right? People who implement things work with you. So and uh, mm -hmm. you collaborate with products as well who do define what business impact to expect and things like that. And you collaborate with legal team who is advising mm -hmm. you what you can and cannot do, mm -hmm. things like that. So, but yes. It's a lot of coordinations and meetings. You can, in a weekly basis, you can meet like, you know, five to 10 different teams and mm -hmm. with different people. So again, this is cross-team collaboration type of stuff when you have a lot of cross-team collaborations. So that's my role. There are also different types of staff, people who, for example, there are people who have very great technical expertise and they know some particular narrow field or not necessarily narrow field very well and they are pulled into troubleshooting so if there is a critical problem and something does not work they are pulled in to solve the problem like firefighting they're great at this there are people who have great depths and widths of some field for example machine learning they act as advisors to the leadership so they're like personal advisor on the technical side there is this kind of stuff and so there are people who have very great expertise compared to the others. So they mentor and teach others this expertise and focus more on hands-on. So they create a lot of leverage by actually coding. But that's not very common. Not usually all the staff are doing a lot of coding. It depends on the role. So if you're a horizontal team and you have a lot of different interactions, you're not paid for coding, you're more paid for your opinion and making decisions and realizing all this and defining roadmap. Although you can, I'm still trying to be involved in coding myself, not only review, but most of the code I don't write, I reviewed. Like one to 10, I'd say. To each one submission that I do, I review 10, something like that. Mm. So just to summarize what you said, there are multiple kinds of stuff engineers, staff level people, or profiles, or, I, I think I've heard the word archetypes. Yes, yes. So the what you do is collaboration uh, and coordination work, right? Then uh, there is uh, like somebody who has great deep technical expertise. So they are pulled in when there is a problem in some specific area and they help so solve it. And then there are people who have broad expertise. So they act as advisors, right? 
Did I miss anything? Well, both broad and deep uh, in some area. Yeah, they, uh-huh. they can be. Uh, or it's one person, right? So deep in one and broad in others. No, there are people who who manage to have both. So after okay. after a while, you know, if you're 20 years in the field, <laughs> I guess yeah, it's like this T-shaped profile, right? Yes. So yeah, there is a book. I think it's called Staff Engineer Pass, which uh, defines those archetypes quite well. So, and I quite agree with that definitions. I've read that book, and yes. Okay, so you're paid for your opinion. You spend fifty percent time in meetings. And then, like you define, you work on strategy, define roadmaps. Then you also mentor people, uh, take part in design decisions. And you mentioned that at the beginning you needed to work like seventy, eighty hours because I guess for you it was many of these things were difficult, right? So you you weren't certain that your design decisions are good, so that you wanted to improve your skills. Did I understand it correctly? Yes, I wanted to, like some of that was very well transferred from academia. For example, all this communication, collaboration, roadmap, strategy, it's exactly how you define your research proposal. You write a plan for two years, you define goals, you lialize with different teams and so on. Mentoring, a big part of academic work. So nothing changed there. But I did not work NLP before, and I did not work exactly with this type of recommendation systems at that scale. So that was a big part of learning. So I took a couple of courses, both on NLP and recommendation systems. But I also read a lot in blog posts and in papers that other companies publish. And also a big part of uh, learning was internal tools. You can't learn them outside Pretty much you can, but uh, they're not that common outside. So you learn a lot of those internal tools. And plus, uh, I did not work with Scala Spark before. So and with Kubernetes, I did not work before. There were also some gaps because I never worked as a software engineer. So I had probably a little bit more gaps in the technical part, but a little bit fewer in strategy and communication, thanks to academia. How did you approach learning? How did you know what next to learn? Did you create a plan and follow this plan? Did you ask your colleagues for their advice? Or how did you do this? So yeah, my onboarding was rather hectic. I was just learning whatever I could without, you know, proper understanding what to prioritize. So in the beginning, you're overwhelmed simply because you don't know what you need to prioritize and how. So if I had to do it a second time, I would understand better. And that wouldn't require that much time. So, yeah, basically taking one course after the other and without clear understanding what is more important at this very moment. I only got this understanding in about two, three months. Mm -hmm. So that sounds very overwhelming, right? Trying to, you know, learn everything at the same time or at least one after another. How would you suggest, uh, like, let's say, if you could give a piece of advice to yourself in the past, what would it be? Like, how would you suggest yourself in the past to approach this? Yes, that's a good question. So onboarding is always a challenge. And onboarding in a big company is definitely is a challenge. So I would find more mentors from the start and just to ask to help with this technical plan. In fact, I had a mentor, but immediately he went to parental leave. So, and that's why I did not have a mentor and such 
on onboarding. Usually in onboarding process, you have a mentor who helps you and who guides you. And mm -hmm. after that, we spent quite a time developing our onboarding for the next engineers so they will not be overwhelmed. Hopefully that worked. So that's uh, number one, find mentors immediately and ask. Also communicate with your manager all the time about priorities and expectations. And don't feel urged to deliver something in production in the first two months. It's okay. You have your time to onboard. In a big tech company, of course, if you're in a startup, you need to deliver by the end of the week. <laughs> no pressure. Right? <laughs> Just kidding. But yes, it depends on, on the size of the company. It's mm -hmm. time. Yeah. yeah. Maybe startups don't really need this kind of profiles. Like they don't need uh, somebody who is coordinating because if it's just, I don't know, one or two teams, then people can just talk to each other without this special role, probably. And I know that you joined LinkedIn as a staff engineer after working in healthcare. And you managed to skip like a few roles before staff. So I know the usual career progression is uh, you join a company as a junior, then you, there, there are juniors, there are middle level professionals, then there are seniors, and then only after that staff engineers. And you, from what I understood, didn't have experience in the industry, yet you didn't join LinkedIn as a middle level engineer or senior engineer, you joined it immediately as a staff engineer. And I'm wondering, how did this happen? How did you manage to kind of jump over these roles before and join and land a pretty high level position? Yeah, I got this question a lot. So uh, there is a myth, I think, that whenever you, you start a new career, you have to start with a junior level. Mm -hmm. This is not correct. So it's not that I did not have my career before. I actually had a PhD in physics, and then I worked in science for, I don't know, six years or so, leading my own projects like a research fellow. So when you're a principal investigator in science, what you do is the following. You come up with idea of a project that nobody on earth ever done before. You need to find partners to make this happen. So you need to find a host institute who has enough equipment, partner institutes, industrial partners, like ideally five different organizations across the globe. You need to write a proposal when you put your plan, uh, implementation plan, you sell motivation, why you need to do that. You do budgeting, you do your strategy, your OKRs, your everything. And if you are in the top 9% of those who submitted proposals, you get money. If you don't, you're jobless. That's how it works in science. And that's what I was doing for cool. like, um, yes, it's much more complicated compared to situation in industry in this regard. And I got like uh, three successful grants in a row, which is quite good. To get three successes, you obviously need to have three or more failures as well. So not all of my proposals were successful, but they teach you tone how you find collaborators, how you align with them how you agree, how you write a plan, how you make a strategy, and so on. And then you lead those projects. So you hire students, PhD students, you mentor them, and uh, you go through problems because it's highly risky projects in science. Nobody done it. You don't know if you can do it or not. Sometimes it leads to invention disclosures and great papers. Sometimes, oops, it's not going to work. It's also normal. It's very high risky projects. And all that you can transfer. So a lot of those skills are actually transferable in terms of ownership, leadership, mentorship, strategy, road mapping, and all that stuff. 
there are some things that you don't do. Like, for instance, you don't program in Scala, but you program in Fortran or MATLAB. So it's not exactly that, but not that much different. So it's technical skills that you need to fill the gaps. But for technical skills, I'd say six months, 12 months, you work yourself, you learn, you get it. It's much harder to learn soft skills, in my opinion. And to up-level your communication and collaboration, it's way harder than learning Python, for example, in my opinion. And when you move to industry, it's important to put the right angle on all your previous experience and sell it in the right way. So in the beginning, I was making mistakes talking about lasers too much. So at the end, I stopped talking about lasers at all. I was talking what I was doing in terms of collaboration, alignment, delivery, and so on. And you could see straight away how it aligns well with the staff role. What also helps if you look at the tech lead, lead role, uh, staff role in the organization in terms of their descriptions and expectations. And then you see how your previous experience aligns with what is in that doc. The docs are quite possible to find. So although it's not like typical to have a career change, I'm not the only one like that. I know a bunch of people who were in academia and or hospital, like my mentor in hospital who was leading me during my internship, he moved to Qualcomm straight as a staff engineer. He's a director now. And then my manager, my own manager at LinkedIn, she also started, she moved from academia to LinkedIn straight to the staff position. So it happens. It's just not that common because not many people change the area. And if you're a really great scientist, you actually can start as a distinguished, but you're, you have to be fairly, you know, if, if you're this level of uh, expertise, like highly recognized scientists in academia, you can move to the highest level. That also happens. Like Jan Likun, right? And Facebook. Yeah, it happens. And uh, the other option is some people, they do PhD, for instance, and they do startup. And then if the startup is acquired by a big company, they can start at the high level. For example, I know an example when Lyft acquired a startup and that startup CEO started to be a director. So he joined industry at the director level. So it's not that you have to start with middle or junior every time. Mm -hmm. You already had some career and you had your experience. It's just to which role you can fit most of your transferable skills. Yeah. That's interesting. So the main takeaway for me is like, it's a myth that you have to start from a junior and you need to sell yourself in the right way. And I have two follow-up questions here. So maybe first, okay, yes, you need to sell yourself, but how do you convince them to actually I don't know, trust you? How do you convince them that these skills that you have are transferable from academia to the industry? Because at the beginning, you also said that uh, it's very different environments. So how do you convince your employer that the skills you got in that environment are transferable to this new environment? Because they are pretty different. Yeah, true. However, it also depends on the angle. So in the beginning, I wasn't successful quite with that. So in fact, first interviews, I was failing. But then after some practice, I learned which angle to choose, how to present my projects. One of the ways is to focus on your research projects that you've done in partnership with industry. And I had some of those. 
if this was partnership with industry and you can say that, okay, we deliver an optical system for Alcon who produces lenses to identify defects on those lenses in a non-contact method and so on. So that's pretty much industrial things. It's very applied. So focus more on applied projects, for example. And uh, if you had any collaborations with big companies, it also helps, things like that. Obviously, they had to take risk as well, but you have to be just better than all other candidates. So for example, if your experience was different, it's probably not that preferable than if you just move to other big tech company at the same role. However, you're always assessed compared to other candidates. And if you pass all, all interviews better than other candidates, it's okay. They may consider you even if you change as a role. So you have to prepare better for interviews and be better than others. Yeah, so we want to spend quite some time talking about interviews. But before that, I'm really curious, how did you understand for yourself that the staff role is really for you? Like Because you didn't have this prior experience in uh, industry. So somebody probably told you that you don't have to start from a junior position, right? So then you learned about that this, you learned about this staff role, you learned it exists, and you learned that it's something that might fit your background, your experience, and you started preparing for this. So how did this happen? No, it wasn't like that. I was just applying for any positions. I did not contact them. They contacted me first. Uh-huh. So the same was with Meta. I did not contact them. They wrote me first. In fact, when I was working in hospital, I did not consider even big tech companies. I knew it's very hard to get to and uh, you need to prepare for interviews and you need to solve those lead code problems. So I wasn't applying, but they were reaching out to me. Uh, the first was Meta, who wrote that your resume is fantastic for our role. I got a bit surprised, but I decided why not to try the interviews. At the end of the day, I have nothing to lose. And that's when I talked to the recruiter. He decided that it's like a senior staff role after we discussed my experience. I was like, okay. And I went to interviews and I failed coding. <laughs> but the rest was brilliant. Like I got overwhelming great feedback on system design, machine learning design, cultural fit, everything, just coding obviously, because I didn't prepare. And then I realized, okay, it's not that hard to actually pass interviews to the big tech companies. All I need is just to start lead coding. And that's it. Like <laughs> You say it as if it's so easy. Yeah, well, then I was also interviewing with startups and they were considering me for the lead role. And in fact, I had some offer for the lead role in one of the startups. Uh, lead in the direction. So they kind of justified me this way after we discussed my experience. And that a bit put my level up from what I initially thought because this was validation from outside. And so, as I said, I felt coding in Meta, but they did not send me away because I was quite good in designs. So they decided to give me a second chance and wait. So uh, they agreed to give me a chance to prepare for coding interviews and gave me five five, six weeks. So I started learning lead code full time. And at this time, when I was almost ready, LinkedIn came in and just wrote, hey, we have this staff position, would you mind to apply? And I decided why not to go to interviews? I have nothing to lose. And I passed. So the lead code was ready. <laughs> so it was them who decided to contact me. And why they decided to contact me? Because somebody referred me. And why somebody referred me? Because I helped that somebody a few years before that. Uh, so help people, karma comes back and uh, 
when they offered me a staff role, it was not my actually, I wouldn't even apply for that maybe, but they approached me first. But then I found that indeed I'm quite a good fit for this particular type of staff with a lot of cross-team, cross-functional collaboration. For this mm -hmm. particular type, I am a good fit. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, two years ago we discussed uh, this at length, like how exactly you can help. Like I think we talked about like forming teams, right? So how you approach career changes and helping others was one of the things there. So then I guess you were doing this for quite some time and then karma thanked you, right? And uh, what I liked, what you said right now, multiple times, that you have nothing to lose. Like every time an opportunity comes, you say, oh, okay, whatever. Like what can possibly go wrong there, right? Like they decline me and that's not the end of the world, right? If they deny you, you're exactly at the, the stage where you're now. So mm -hmm. you're not losing anything. I don't know. Some people are afraid of failures, but in fact, those are not failures. Failures is when you when you lose a lot. Like you cannot do failure in mountaineering. That is a bit of a problem. But for dry an interview, it's not a failure even. <laughs> Rejections suck, right? Like it's kind of bad for your self-esteem, for self-worth. Like, okay, like they say, I'm not worth this stuff in your position, then I'm not worthy at all, no? No, not for me. I just don't feel it. I look at it like as adventure. Let's try it. And if I failed, okay, I, I learned this, this. I failed a lot before I passed, by the way. In the beginning, I was failing every interview. Every, mm -hmm. I failed to lift. I failed me at the end because I did not pass that coding again. <laughs> and uh, I failed lots of startups and so on. But I don't feel that it... Um, it doesn't affect my self-esteem because I consider it as learning. So I need to learn interview process. Interview process has nothing to do with my abilities, expertise, uh, and so on. So maybe because I don't consider evaluation at interview really as evaluation of you. It's more like an evaluation of your interview skills mm -hmm. in a way. It doesn't work. How did you arrive at this conclusion that, uh, I mean, I totally agree with you, but it probably took some time for you to realize that it's not about you. You just need to know the process. Yeah. Well, trying and failing, that's how I arrived. <laughs> I see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was trying in the beginning. I learned that, okay, you need to change this. You need to work on this. And next time it goes better. And next time it goes better. I did a lot of mock interviews. I remember you were helping me. Thank you with mock interviews as well. And I asked many people. So, and I learned a lot about that as well. And when I started to realize which problems I need to solve, how to present myself and so on, and it started to be bad at this I clearly understood it's more about uh, preparing for interviews and learning how to yeah. explain your thoughts well. Then I think it's also one of the things we talked about last time, like, you know, failure is not necessarily bad, right? It's an opportunity to learn. Yeah. So you said that during the interview with Meta, you did quite well at system design, ML design, other things. You didn't do well in coding, in lead code kind of questions. So how did you actually, without working in the industry, how did you actually manage to prepare yourself and pass these interviews? Yeah, so for the big tech companies, let's separate startups from big tech companies. Mm -hmm. They have different flows. And for the startups, 
it's hard actually to prepare because they can ask you whatever they want and any minute. Uh, for the big tech companies, the process is more or less standardized and goes through certain steps and you can familiarize yourself and start preparing. So one of the important aspects of big tech companies, they ask you coding interviews with type of questions that you can find on LeetCode. And so far, I didn't see many people who are able to solve them without preparation. There are guys who can come and solve it, but they were participating in competitive programming and they solved about thousands of them in school. So that doesn't count. <laughs> if you never solved them and you never solved like thousands of that in school, chances are, big chances are, you will not pass that interview. So that interview is more about preparation than about your coding skills, which is a bit annoying for most of the programmers in the world. But this is a scalable solution and that's how you can assess different candidates fairly. So that was the biggest challenge for me. Although I know that for some people, machine learning design is the biggest challenge. And some people are not very good in behavioral interviews. So everybody is different. So for me, uh, the biggest challenge, as I realized, was this lead code type of interviews. I got lead code premium. That was a good idea. In LeetCode Premium, you see not only popular questions, but you also can see solutions, and they also provide you cards with theory. So I will start in studying recursion, how to form it, and then we'll go through some common tasks with solutions. And after you've done 10 of those, you can solve 11s, hopefully yourself. And for every topic, it was like that. All the topics were new for me. I didn't know about even recursion when I started because I don't have computer science degree. I did not do that uh, algorithms in university. So maybe that's why it was the biggest challenge for me. So in total, I'd say two months is enough. As for me, I was doing it at that time, the uh, work in hospital stopped because that's exactly what happens when you don't raise funding for the next proposals that I described. So sometimes you fail and then you're jobless. So that's exactly what happened in the hospital. We did not raise uh, money for the next stage. And uh, everybody who was not a doctor, who was a contractor, got jobless. Uh, means that I had plenty of time for coding. So I was coding nine to five every day. And in five, six weeks, I got like 300, uh, 300 problems in LeetCode. So if you solve about 300, 350 problems, mostly focusing on mediums, not easy, and do all the theory, I'd say to some big tech companies, it will be enough. Maybe not for Google, but for many, it will be enough. That's how I prepared LeetCode. That's uh admirable perseverance, like, <laughs> like really six weeks in a row <laughs> yes nine to five or nine to six uh, 350 problems on lead code that's really an accomplishment it's uh, like how did you not give up i like that at the end so in the beginning i hated it but after some time it's actually cool you know i like it i like physics math and those type of algorithms those challenges i found it pleasant after some time mm -hmm. so I am a geek. Yeah, I can like such things. <laughs> I guess uh, like when you solve a problem yourself without looking at hints, you kind of get a... Dopamine. Dopamine. Okay, yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like gaming, but it's different. Yeah, but it's like a bit like gaming, right? Some people like gaming. So when they are successful, they get these hormones. 
same for me when I solve lead code myself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. How about like with lead code is just grinding, right? So you have to do this a lot, right? So you have to solve a lot of problems, especially if you don't have a computer science background, like in your case. How about other rounds like system design, ML design, behavioral? I think for behavioral, probably, like you said, you have the, the soft skills that uh, you had from academia, and then probably it's just about thinking about situations you had in academia, and then, you know, describing okay. the situations. How about these two others, like system design, ML design, which you don't do at a, in academia, I guess? So uh, surprisingly easy for me was ML design. And I realized that in academia, I was designing optical systems and lasers. And they have much in common with machine learning designs. You also start with scratch with the first principles. You understand what you want to accomplish, which data you need to collect, how much data, how you want to annotate it, and so on. And you can see the different options and their trade-offs. And uh, so basically, ML design, in the way of thinking, in the way of thinking, it's quite similar to designs in physics in a way. Yeah, it's completely different fields and you need to know different techniques and stuff, but your way of thinking of decomposition, the problem and planning and about data and your intuitions, physics helps a lot here, to be honest. That was my discovery. But to do that properly, I've done uh, several mock interviews with people I know on ML design. Mock interviews helped me the most. I also found some blog posts uh, about ML design and a couple of YouTube videos. Uh, there is also Grokin ML design course, but I did not like that one, to be honest. And the best was a blog post by Patrick Halina, who wrote basically how to answer ML design on a staff level. And he's a staff in Pinterest. So, and I followed his guide more or less, his plan. But also what was useful is for each particular company, I would go on their blog post and I would read about their ML designs. For example, I go to Lyft, I then open blog post of Lyft and I read about their ML designs. And then in interviews, when they ask me, I say, yeah, I've read in your blog post, you do it the following way. That's already a plus because you prepared and you know what stack they're using and you know what kind of designs they work on. So if you go to YouTube, you can just open the papers, uh, they publish recommendation systems and uh, archive even, and in the blog post, whatever is published and familiarize yourself with how they design things. I think it makes sense. And when you studied for a number of companies like YouTube, Google, TripAdvisor, and so on, you start to see the patterns as well. And uh, also, what they write often, like Airbnb also wrote about their ML designs attempts. They write what worked, what did not work in industry, in real life. Unlike all those academic narrow papers, not always what you see in academic papers is really uh, applicable to industry. Or maybe they just move a metric by 0.001% with a lot of effort, and that's not what you're going to do. So... <laughs> Uh, having those blog posts from companies helped to identify patterns and answer questions a lot. How did you approach systematizing all this information? Because to me, like, it sounds like a lot, a huge lot of different sources. And it's just like, how do you even manage to process and 
learn from this in a way that you could talk about this at an interview? Like, did you take notes? Did you some special approach or how did you do this? Yeah, I'm an old school, so I keep things like that uh-huh. all the time. I write, oh, that's about birth. That's when I was studying about birth. <laughs> For those who listen to this without video, and it's old school. You go through courses and you write the notes and then you summarize them. And I got, I have like that on ML design, on system design course, and I have three of those on LeetCode. Because okay. on LeetCode, I realized that it works better when you write by hand. So, whatever uh, I have a challenging task that I can't solve and understand easily. And after I understood it, I still want to engrave it in my memory. I just take a pen and write it down, like literally write it down, because that's how I remember things. It helps me. So that's how I was. It was a lot of systematic knowledge. But for ML design, it just took maybe a week. And for system design, it took me like five days to prepare. And for lead code, it was like almost two months. But for some other people can be different. So for system design, I just followed some advice on the internet, and I bought Grokin system design course. It was quite cheap, like I think $50 or something. So I bought it and I started it. And that was enough to pass the interview. Uh, although if you want in-depth understanding, people advise reading data density publications book, mm-hmm. uh, which I also read parts of it. But for interview, actually having that course, and 20 mock interviews is mock interviews are important, very important. Mm-hmm. That will be enough to pass mm-hmm. the interview. But it does not make you a great system designer, of course. You need to have some hands-on practice after after you pass the interview and start working at the company, I guess, right? <laughs> yes, well, you understand the basics. So people who are doing ML design need to understand system design because you are designing ML systems at scale. But if you're hired for ML part, ML part, I'd say it's more important than your experience with load balancers and things like that, because there is always infrastructure team and big companies who take care of that. But you need to understand on high level how it works, more or less. But if you don't know all the load balancing techniques after some time, maybe it's not crucial. You know, mm. It depends on your role. One week to prepare for system design is pretty impressive, given that I, I don't know much about your prior background because before that, yeah. but uh, I guess like terms like load balancer didn't mean much to you before you you started <laughs> reading these things. So like, and in one week is impressive. So you probably have very good memory. Yeah, I have a good memory. Plus, what works to me is deadlines. I just put that yeah. interviews with Facebook because why not to try? And then for ML part, I already tried and failed in Lyft and I passed in Shutterstock and I had some offers. So ML part was pretty much trained. And system design was specifically for Facebook because in other companies, they did not ask it. They did not ask system design at LinkedIn, for example. And on Facebook, they ask system design. And I did not have a chance to prepare for that before, but I already put an interview. So I had a deadline. So I just mm-hmm. did all that course in five days and mm-hmm. uh, put a few mock interviews with people who worked in Facebook. And so the great help was uh, that I could practice mock interview with a person who worked in Facebook and he knew what is expected on 
uh, mm-hmm. system design. But I passed not because of that. I passed because the role was more about an intersection of machine learning and optics. And we did not dive that much into system design, but we were discussing things like 3D reconstruction and epipolar axis and optics. And that's my field. So mm-hmm. I a bit got lucky as well with the topic, but that's how they selected my resume out of all possible resumes. I think they needed somebody with expertise in optics. And that helped. And from what I heard from you, having net, a network is really helpful. If you know somebody or can get to know somebody from Meta or from the company where you have an interview and just ask them, hey, can you have a mock interview with me, please? And then they're just, okay, how about yes? And that's how you prepare, right? Because I understand that just taking a course is not enough, right? No, no, not enough. It's hard to put it all in your head properly. And during mock interviews, you learn more. There are other cases like, yes, it's nice if you have mentors and people who are willing to help you. But uh, ideally, I try to have it like mutual that I give value to person and he gives value to me. So what can you do if other people are much more experienced than you? You cannot provide the mock interviews. But there were also mock interviews when we did it mutually. So. I interviewed the guy and he interviews me and we both prepare for the same level of position. Mm-hmm. So there were a couple of interviews like that. And uh, yes, lucky enough, I had mentors who were willing just to help me, but I will just, for instance, send them a painting as a thank mm-hmm. you. So I like to return, give something in return, but not always you can give the same level because they are more advanced. Well, then you can gift a painting, for example. Mm-hmm. Well, sometimes people are just fine with helping without expecting anything in return, because who knows, maybe in 10 years, you will be their manager or something. Like, you know, this karma thing that you mentioned, you help somebody and then uh, after some time, they refer you and you get a job. Yeah, I think it's also a good strategy. Like I always try to help other people. So people whom I mentor, I am more advanced than them and there are people who mentor me, but in across the globe, all this getting help and providing help. I like to keep it in balance, even more on helping side. Also, it makes you happier, I think, if you help somebody and you see the progress. It does, yeah. So I see that there are some questions. So a question from Hari. As a staff AI engineer, how much of your time do you deal with data engineers, data scientists, with building ETLs, building pipelines, and doing all this envelopes stuff? Yes. Yeah, so again, it depends on the projects. In some projects, you have a lot of collaboration with data scientists. So because you require some initial analysis, I think in some projects, you collaborate more with products. In some projects, you have to collaborate quite a lot with legal. So it's kind of project-based. But as I said, like all those collaborations, like it's around half of the time. And then the other part of the time is... Uh, designs and reviewing and preparing the docs and things like that. So ETL pipelines, I do implement some because I like to stay hands-on, but uh, most of the time they're implemented for you by people who you mentor. So you just decide what has to be done and they implement it and you review the code. Mm -hmm. And you said that you do quite a lot of code reviewing, right? A lot, yeah. Quite a lot of code reviewing, yeah. 
like for me, doing code review is difficult because if I'm working with multiple projects at the same time, every time I review a piece of code, I need to get back into the context of that specific project and understand why this code is written in exactly this way. This is very difficult, like especially if it's like three, four projects at the same time. How do you do this? Yeah, I could have like five projects at the same time, but I quite well remember each contact because you jump between meetings of literally like now you're discussing this project, the next project, oh. 25 minutes, 25 minutes. You just jump between meetings and you're already like switching context. Mm-hmm. I think it just trains you to be always in context or maybe just my thing that I'm quite easy to switch and I remember what's going on in, in like five different projects. No problem. Did you do anything special to get this skill or it was just always like that for you? It was always like that for me. Context switching was easy for me. Yeah, always. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I was going to ask you for advice on how to approach that, but (laughs) I guess. (laughs) This is just a gift maybe, I don't know. Yeah, it's easy for me to switch between like, like from meeting to meeting, completely change of context, different projects that we discuss. Okay. Hard to advise what, what to do about it. <laughs> well, maybe I guess what worked for me at the end, I think, is somehow arrange things in a way that don't require context switch, like sequentially, and then maybe have this box. But yeah, it's it's not easy, at least for me. So another question that I still I think we have in the list and I didn't ask you is somebody, let's say, wants to follow your path and go from academia to industry and also get on a staff level? What advice would you give to them? Yeah, that's a good question. First of all, don't be shy to go to the tech lead role or lead role. If you were leading in academia, you have most of the challenging transferable soft skills. It's much harder to learn than learning programming, you know, Git and other tools. Prepare some pet projects that are in line, but also look at your own career as a whole and the parts where you were leading things, initializing things, mentoring, teaching, up-leveling team, all that is quite transferable and important. If you're able to understand the requirements of the future role of a lead or tech lead, get them and see how this aligns with your previous experience. Prepare well for cultural interview because the behavioral interview, it's exactly when you show yourself at the right level, most of it. You do that for during all interviews, but the cultural and behavioral interview, it's the main show of your leadership skills, your ownership, and prepare for that well. You may also want to practice that with somebody who already is an in industry on a high level role. If you happen to have such mentor like a director, I didn't, so I didn't prepare. But if I could, I would use that chance and get the feedback. Some people get even coaching and consulting on that. Obviously, prepare for the others' interviews also well, because even if you're a great leader and so on, if you fail lead coding, as we know, <laughs> you will not get a job. So. You have to be ready for, for the other things too. And give yourself time. It's okay if you're going to fail for some time. It took me a year between when I started interviewing and I could not pass down to the point when I had all interviews, all offers. So I had like five interviews in process and like five offers, uh, 100%. So from 0% to 100%, it took me one year and a lot of failures. Be ready for that. 
if you don't fail and you don't try, you will not get it. Like kids who learn something, they always fail it from the first time usually. And learn to live with failure, right? It's not about you personally. No, it's not about you. I even don't consider it as a failure. For me, failure is like, you know, something where you really lose and like mountaineering is dangerous. But interviews, if you fail, you're exactly where you were. So it's not really a failure. It's more like a try mm. with, with no risk. Yeah. You have nothing to lose. Yes, you have nothing to lose, really. So, yeah. Yeah, you're saying this like third, fourth time? Indeed, because it's the case, right? Because it is the case, yes. So when people don't want to try because they're afraid, I completely don't understand. Yes, so it's, it is the case. And the uh, question from Chali is, what is the most exciting thing about working as an AI engineer or AI staff engineer? Oh, yes. This is very interesting field. Uh, look what happens now with all this chat GPT and diffusion models and so on. So you, at the age of technology, you're actually like one of the first people for making the future and moving into the future. So that's very exciting. You can actually try lots of different technologies and you have a freedom of what you want to try because you can also lead some R&D projects, for example. And this I find very exciting that you have to learn in this fast change in field when the future is really coming, every few months you have some new revolutions, some changes. That's very interesting and that's very cool. And uh, mastering this and understanding how it all works, it's very interesting. So uh, the other part is if you, like I really like, I was craving for that in science is to see quite a big uh, and uh, fast turnover between your work and some impact uh, metrics of revenue and so on in the company you work so when you actually push things in the production and you see how they influence and you see the impact it's very pleasant not always it's the case in science sometimes you develop lots of things you write papers but you don't feel it's neat and you don't feel the impact it takes time in science to get an impact yeah yeah thanks i know we're running out of time but this one will be the last one and really quick. Are there any books or other learning resources that you can recommend to the listeners? Yeah, there are lots of books depending on what you want. Well, let's take like one or two. <laughs> I like communication for communication. I think it's important to learn how to communicate. It's crucial conversations and uh, never split the difference. I'd say that's the best too. If you want to understand about staff role, the Staff Engineering Pass is the best book on that one, I'd say. Then I like books in general about leadership and ownership and stuff. There is a book, Extreme Ownership. And uh, for career, it's highly advised to read the book Rice by Patia Nizala. So I'd career-oriented books, yeah. Thank you. So always pleasure having you here. We should... Uh... Maybe in two years again, have a chat and see what changed. Okay. So yeah, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for sharing your knowledge, your experience, uh, getting this uh, stuff AI engineering role, sharing with us what you do. Thanks everyone for joining us today too. And uh, everyone have a great weekend. Thank you.